I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Thursday morning. If you're not listening as soon as the episode comes out, hi, too. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's my baseline, though. Yeah. No, you're right. You're okay. Because people, you know, you'll be like, just pleasantries. Oh, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. And then they go, just okay? And I always say, that's just how I am. Like, that's good for me. That is Liz's good, sadly. <laughs> but anywho, we got some good news to share with you guys today. Yeah, which is pretty rare for a true crime podcast. I mean, usually it's about bad and depressing and murder. <laughs> yep, right. But... We actually have a little update on a case that we covered. So if you may recall, if you're a loyal listener, if you just found us and binged and caught up, on our 28th episode, we covered the suspicious death of Lori Malloy. So Lori was a 30-year-old mom living in Rhode Island. She was found under very suspicious circumstances. She was found naked in her apartment, no real outward signs of injury, the scene around her was very bizarre. There were slices of bread. So random. Around the apartment, around her body, mm-hmm. clumps of her own hair all over the place and wrapped in her fingers and toes and just very strange. Water was left running. The door was left open. It was just very bizarre and no one had heard from her and she wasn't really responding to the person who was taking care of her young daughter. And it was just very strange. So her daughter now, her name is Lauren, she runs a website and social media called Unsolved RI, which stems from her working to get justice for her mom, because if you guys recall from the episode, her death was not appropriately declared a natural death. Mm -hmm. Um, The autopsy didn't make sense. The medical examiner, his license was under scrutiny. It just was not a good situation. Right. So Lauren has been busting her ass, essentially, and has been working really hard to get her mom's case reopened, and we have a huge update for you guys about it. And we're so excited, you know, to be able to share this with you guys, especially excited for Lauren because she is such a hard worker, and, you know, she founded Unsolved RI, and really this is the whole foundation, is her mother's case. So as of yesterday... Lori's body has been exhumed and they are, she's currently with the medical examiner and she is going to have a round of modern day testing because her murder, death, whatever it was, happened in 1993. So that's 30 years. So because of Lauren's persistence and advocacy for her mother's case, her body was exhumed. She's currently at the medical examiner's, like I said. They're going to do all these tests that they did not have before, and then Lori will be cremated, which is what she wanted. But, you know, I'm glad that they didn't do that yet because now I think because of what Lauren is doing, definitely, maybe they'll get a real answer. Oh, my God. My fingers are crossed for her. Even if it's just, you know, whatever the results are, I think with her being such a good daughter and like you said Liz her advocacy I Mm -hmm. think that whatever the results of this are Mm -hmm. it is just an attestment to her hard work and her dedication and how much of an amazing advocate she is not just for her mom Mm -hmm. 
but for other people, missing persons, murder victims out of Rhode Island. She's mm-hmm. been doing a really great job. Yes, she honestly kills it. She does so good. So I think this is well-deserved because of her and her hard work. So like you said, Katie, crossing our fingers, hoping that some answers come for this, uh, for Lori, for Lauren, and just it's only right that she gets a proper um send off like she wanted uh like cremation so i'm glad that she'll be able to finally have that and maybe some answers along with it if you guys want to revisit our episode episode 28 the suspicious death of Lori malloy definitely check it out obviously it is quite back in the past but that does not take away from the content that we talked about And like you were describing, Katie, the circumstances were so suspicious. The bread thing has never left my brain. Me either. There's bread everywhere. Like, what's up with that? And the chair and her toes and her, yeah, something is is off. So we'll keep you guys posted. Definitely follow Lauren on Instagram. She runs the Unsolved RI page. And then there's also her website, unsolvedri.com, which is very well done with updates and documents. And she just does a great job. So definitely check her out, support her, and hopefully we'll hear some things within the next few weeks and maybe a conclusion. That would be so phenomenal. Be great. The case we have today is another case that is unsolved. There's actually kind of a weird speculation correlation between Ted Bundy. Yeah. Which is pretty fascinating. You know, you can dispute it. It has since been disputed. Yes. But I just think that it's a very interesting correlation and it came up a lot in the research. Yeah. But yeah, this is another one that's unsolved. It's actually Vermont's oldest unsolved case. Which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And hopefully... Us doing this episode directly gets it solved. Just kidding. That won't happen. But at least we're getting it out there. And without further ado, today we will be covering the The murder murder of Rita Rita Curran. All right, Katie, let me know what you got for sources today. Sure. I had information from my Champlain Valley. Hi, I'm Ted.blog, which is a blog about crimes that potentially could be linked to Ted Bundy, but maybe we're not 100% sure. Burlington Free Press, vsp.vermont.gov, which is the state police website, and The Daily Beast. All right. I also have The Daily Beast, as well as Hi, I'm Ted, which also is called Killer in the Archives. That's the website. And then I used The Criminal Journal and Sin Writes True Crime, which is a blog. And Sin is spelled S-Y-N, just so you guys know. And Yeah, that's all I had. On July 19th of 1971, around 10 p.m., 24-year-old Rita Curran was just returning home to her Burlington, Vermont apartment as she had been in a rehearsal for the barbershop quartet she was a part of, which already off to a good start. That is so pure. (laughs) Rita was actually very shy and, as a result, felt that she needed to put herself out there a little more, be a little more comfortable, and her solution to that was a barbershop quartet which I think is fantastic. I think that's so fun. Like, if you have the talent and you feel like that's something for you, that's so much fun. Yeah, and to be shy and want to sing in front of people? Okay. Yeah. She's really putting herself out there. She was described as being almost painfully shy. 
like excruciatingly shy. Yeah. So I think that's a really big step for someone who is maybe not so confident or who maybe is very quiet. Yes. So good for her. Yeah. And despite being shy and quiet, Rita actually was a teacher. She had just moved to Burlington, Vermont, just about a month prior uh, to this incident. And she had been living near her place of work, which was Milton Elementary School in a different part of Vermont. And she was a second grade teacher. And from what I could tell, well-loved as a teacher, did just fine. Uh, She was only 24, so she probably was pretty new to it, I would imagine. But she loved it. And she actually had moved to Burlington to attend literature classes and teaching classes at UVM. So coincidentally, her new apartment was basically on the border of UVM, which is convenient and nice. And clearly she's, she's shy, but she's not unmotivated. Definitely. When Rita wasn't taking classes for elementary education at UVM, she was working part-time as a chambermaid at the South Burlington Colonial Motor Inn, which sounds probably awful, but you know, you got to make money. She's in summer school. She's doing it. Rita lived with two roommates, 24-year-old Beverly Lamphere and 19-year-old Carrie Duane, and they all shared the ground-level apartment, which was located on Brooks Avenue in Burlington. So back to that night, it's July 19th, 1971, just for memory's sake, and Rita gets home, it's like 10, and around 11, her roommate Beverly left the apartment to meet up with Carrie, who was not home, and together they were going to go to dinner with Beverly's boyfriend, a man named Paul Robinson, and they were just going to go to a local restaurant. For whatever reason, this always confused me, there was only one set of keys. So... Obviously, like, Burlington is a very safe place, and even the college town, like, it's a very safe residential area, and they often left their doors unlocked, and, again, only had one set of keys for three people. So, when they left, when Beverly left, she took the only set of keys, and she left the back door and the front door to their apartment unlocked, which then in my brain I think, okay, why... If Rita's going to be there, why don't she keep the keys and then you guys just, she'll decide to lock it or let you in when you come back, right? I guess it wasn't uncommon for the girls to lock their doors. Um, They would usually leave the doors unlocked, actually, regardless of who was home, who had the keys. But it became such a habit, I think, that they were like, okay, we'll take the keys just to take them and the doors will be unlocked. Yeah. It was also the 70s. True. So I guess it was part of the culture, you know, who locks their doors back in the day, especially in Burlington, Vermont. Vermont is still known as, what, the safest state, the single most safe state? At least the very top three. Mm -hmm. So I can see why they would make those decisions. And, quote, nothing ever happens over here, Mm. as someone was recorded as saying, which we always hear that. No matter where you are, there's always true crime stories where that is said, and then oh, guess what? Something did happen over here. So it's all just a matter of time. So roughly two hours later, so it was like 1 a.m., Beverly, Carrie, and Paul came back to the apartment. They didn't see Rita, which wasn't super odd. She was getting ready for bed when they had left. She had put curlers in her hair. She was kind of winding down for the night. They actually had asked her to join them for dinner, and 
whether it was just that she needed to go to bed for class, she was tired, or she was just really shy, she was like, no, thank you. And, you know, they left to go to the restaurant and she went to bed, naturally, right? So they assumed she just was sleeping and they hung out in the living room and just talked and partied, you know, whatever, just hanging out. They decided to turn in for the night eventually. Beverly shared a bedroom with Rita. And so when it was time for them to go to bed, Beverly made her way to the bedroom when she discovered something terrible. So laying on the floor just inside the door in the bedroom that they shared, Beverly came upon Rita, who was not in bed. She was naked, brutally beaten, and obviously dead on the floor. Her hair had been in curlers, just like Beverly had said she had seen her in before she left to go to the restaurant. And she was also laying on torn underwear, which was bloodied just like her body. So Paul says later in a 2021 article, he says that he remembers the scream that Beverly let out. He ran to her. He, despite her injuries, probably being fairly obvious that, well, A, she was dead, but B, could not be resuscitated. He tried CPR, obviously it didn't work, and then they called the police. There were no signs of forced entry, but again, this wasn't really surprising because they didn't lock their doors. Rita's purse had about $20 in cash. It was actually still in the same spot, so the attack wasn't a robbery. Mm -hmm. And Rita was home alone for just about two hours. So it's theorized that the attacker left the apartment when they heard Beverly and company returning home. And it was determined that the attacker left through the kitchen and out the back door. Interesting. Based on, like, blood splatter and mm-hmm. blood stains. Yeah. Um, I guess he had left not really a trail, but splotches of blood yeah. in his wake. Right. Maybe, like, he had stepped on some when moving around the body, or maybe... I think there was something I saw that said that maybe he had some on his hand and he smeared it against the door frame. Mm -hmm. So it was like little things that I bet when you're a murderer, you don't think about so much in the moment. Right. Which ended up, you know, that can, it didn't in this case, but it can really take down a murderer. Police were not able to obtain any usable fingerprints. That sucks. There was a lot of evidence pointing towards Rita fighting back and putting up a pretty strong fight. Oh, Autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted, and this was determined it wasn't officially classified as a rape, Mm. more so a sexual assault in that her underwear was torn, but there wasn't a lot of evidence pointing towards that the sexual assault was fully a rape. Right. But regardless, it's still awful. Of course. They weren't able to determine whether it had been before or after her death, but given what we'll tell you guys later on in the episode, I believe it may have been before she was murdered. Yeah, yeah. Just by the way she fought back. And they, you know, obviously it's 1971, so testing isn't the greatest it could be, but they estimated that her death was between 11.30 and 12.30. So giving a pretty good grace period of like half an hour on each end for when Beverly left and when they all returned. Mm. So I believe she probably had been dead for a little bit. And obviously, you know, it is July, so it's hot outside. But at this point, it's the evening. It's probably not, I wouldn't imagine being much more than 60, if anything. So it's not like 
within that short amount of time she would decompose or anything like that. The evidence is all there preserved pretty well because it's so recent. But it's also 1971. So that's that's definitely a downfall. And unfortunately, I thought this was so sad. In the same article that Paul mentioned, you know, in 2021, he recalled the whole situation. He says that after the fact, obviously, he wondered if she was like still alive while they were hanging out in the uh, the living room. Like if she maybe was unconscious or she oh, was, wow. yeah, or she was like fighting to live, like she was choking on her blood, whatever it may be. He always wondered if that she, they could have saved her. And I get it. I get why you would think that, but I feel like I just hope he hasn't tortured himself over all these years thinking about that. Because there's no way they would have known. There's no way he they could have done anything. So that's a tough thing to live with. A tough thought, at the very least. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that poor guy. I know. Police said that Rita received multiple very strange phone calls before her murder. It was the type of phone call you see in kind of a horror movie mm. where you answer and you think no one's there and then you can hear them breathing. And that's all it ever was, was multiple phone calls just where the person on the other end of the line was breathing. That's so creepy. Oh, God. I Like, the hair on the back of my neck just stands up thinking about that. Oh, yeah. And are you someone, Katie, that listens or is able to listen to 911 calls? I am not. It depends on the call, I think. Okay. A lot of times I don't like listening to 911 calls because, like, that's someone's worst moment. Of course. Yeah. That's the amount point. of fear, the amount of distress. the And honestly, too, a lot of them are really disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I I really try to avoid them if I can. I mean, there's definitely some that are more like, okay, like – husbands pretending to be very sad and surprised that they found their wife murdered on the floor, but really in the end it's them. That kind of thing, that really creeps me out. And then of course, like you said, that's a good point. It's their worst moment. And family or loved ones or even witnesses of people who are murdered or are dying, they're often just the tone of their voice and Mm -hmm. how upset they are. It makes me really uncomfortable, understandably. So I'm I'm definitely not someone who will really listen to those. I will look at crime scene photos till the day's over, but I just can't with 911 calls. And, you know, just to tie it back to the phone calls she was getting, it's 1971. I do not think that voicemail or like voice recording was a thing. If that makes sense, like you couldn't leave a voice message at that point. And I only know that because one time I said maybe at a time around 1970s that you could. And my mom texted me and said, those weren't existing yet. So you couldn't, (laughs) she couldn't have left a voicemail. And I said, okay, noted. So potentially, I'm almost positive there was no such thing as like a voicemail machine. So there was no way to not necessarily corroborate the story of her getting weird phone calls, but to trace them or to even listen to them. So naturally... Once Rita's body was found, she had been killed in such a brutal way. It was obviously murder. Surprise! And naturally, the police immediately started to look into the last people to see Rita, which would be Beverly, Paul, and Carrie, uh, her roommates, the boyfriend of one of her roommates. I can get why they would make that assumption or at least have to check off some boxes because they could have done it. Sure, absolutely. To be fair, 
they probably didn't really assume that the two women had did it because, you know, women don't murder. But Paul, maybe, you know, maybe there was a jealousy. Maybe she knew something and was going to tell his girlfriend. Could have been, they could have rationalized a million different things. So they questioned Carrie and Beverly and Paul, especially paying attention to Paul. And he was interrogated. He was given a polygraph test. He passed. And he was cleared by the police, essentially. But he, as well as the two girls, were instructed to not leave Burlington for the first few weeks of the investigation, just in case, because maybe it really, they're cleared for now. But while they keep looking into it, if you guys make a move for it, we're going to arrest you. So they were like, okay. Holy shit. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, spoiler alert, guys, they did not kill Rita. Mm -mm. So can you imagine being told that by the police? Like, don't fucking move. And you're like, but I I have to go to college. And, like, you just don't know what to do because you did not kill your roommate? Yeah. That's pretty... Not the best strategy. I would be in tears every day. Literally. It's almost like house arrest, I feel like. Yeah, or, like... I would just be so mortified that they thought I was a suspect. Right? I, and you know what? Like I said, I can get why they would interrogate them initially, but they were very easily cleared. And um, still, telling them to not leave even after they've been cleared is like, mm, have we been cleared then? Because in your eyes, I don't think we've been cleared at all. So, Katie, you mentioned that Rita had been receiving these weird phone calls that was essentially just heavy breathing and they all were happening in the evening time well it turns out that she was the only one getting these weird phone calls actually not even by a long shot there had been many women young women who had been receiving these phone calls or had run-ins with peeping toms or something that was creepy weird suspicious and maybe just had not worked up to murder yet. So one of these incidents includes a home invasion that happened a week prior to Rita being murdered that involved a young woman being awoken at 4 a.m. And the scary part is that she woke up to being raped. Like, he was already in the process of raping her. And she woke up and she survived. The rapist left, you know, left her unharmed physically. But she had been raped. It was... All of a sudden, no, like, silence, and then all of a sudden she was being raped. A few months before Rita's murder, in the prior October, there had been an attack on a woman only three blocks away. The woman survived, luckily, but she had been attacked with a knife, and the assaulter had run off and was never caught. So they were like, okay, could this be related? This is weird. Heavy breathing, phone calls, a rape a knife attack, and he got away. Hmm. Yeah, and the peeping Tom, too, Mm -hmm. which that really piqued my interest because let's say a peeping Tom was targeting Rita or targeting that house Mm -hmm. of three girls. Right. It's a ground floor apartment. Mm -hmm. He's fully able to peek into their windows. Absolutely. And if he was in the process of going to the house to look into their windows, he would have seen Rita getting ready for bed Mm -hmm. with the curlers in her hair. Right. Everybody inviting her out with them, everybody else leaving, and Rita being home alone. Yeah, knowing that he had some time. 
Right. Maybe. And knowing that the doors were not locked. Right. And you know what, too? Their apartment was right on the edge of UVM. Maybe it was a college student. College boys are fucked up. Maybe it was, like, kind of one of those deal. Yeah. And even so, too, it totally could have been a college student because the woman that woke up to being raped, mm-hmm. she said that her attacker looked really young. Oh. Like, maybe 16 or 17 at the youngest. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I could see that being a college student. Right. Very interesting. Right. Or maybe a freshman with a baby face that yeah. looked younger. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm wondering if, too, because these attacks and the phone calls, they're all happening to young women in that area around the school. Right. It's not a coincidence. Mm. At least it doesn't feel like it. Maybe some of them are related and some are just complete randomness. But, you know, when investigating a murder like this, especially during that time, and so out of the blue for such a, quote, safe community, I mean, maybe their first thought wouldn't be connecting it to other things. Because nothing else had escalated to murder. Right. Seems like it got kind of close with a knife attack, but this was a whole nother level. So who knows? Maybe somebody got their confidence? I don't know. September of 1971, which was just two months after Rita was murdered, police thought that they had a huge break in the case. They were like, we've done it. We got him. And they found a prime suspect who, to this day, has never been actually named, like, shared with the public. He also, turns out, is not a prime suspect anymore. So that huge break... No, not really. But it turned out that this unknown man was supposedly a neighbor of Rita's, and he had an unrelated rape accusation in his history. Apparently, he was interrogated, polygraphed several times. There was not even close enough evidence to arrest him, and they were like, okay, this case would immediately die in court. Like, there's no way we could prove guilt, so they didn't even bother trying. And he was let go and to again like i said to this day never been named a suspect never even been named so good for him also and i can't believe i'm saying this but in a decent move of extensive police work all men who lived in the burlington area and had a sexual offense history were questioned and over a hundred acquaintances of rita's like went to class with her blah 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 were given lie detector tests Nothing came from these, but I think that's a very thorough job by the police. Wow. Yeah, especially for the time. Definitely. Yeah. So that's kind of impressive. Vermont State Attorney Patrick Leahy, now a U.S. Senator, didn't want any information about the investigation released to the public. Smart move. Rita's sister Mary stated, I don't know why there was a blackout, but it was disappointing as a family to not have her in the news every day. Okay, I can understand that. By the time the blackout came back, you know, news gets old fast. Mm. Yeah, so her sister Mary feels as though this blackout, while it may have helped with the investigation itself, once the investigation didn't turn up anything, it really ended up hurting the investigation because it wasn't fresh in people's minds and it was kind of easy for people to just okay, yeah, that woman was murdered two weeks ago and old news, let's move on. Right. Which is horrible because you know, some, sometimes it feels that way, especially now. Right. With constantly, we go on our phones and see tragedies. Constantly, oh, the news is just tragedy after tragedy. And it's really hard to keep track of them all. But when it's your family, 
that is the only thing you're thinking about. So I think it was really hard for them not to see Rita in the news and not to have her face being broadcasted or in newspapers. Right. Especially as a cold case. Yeah. I I was going to say, I can understand the police, which is a sentence I'll never say again, (laughs) but I can understand them keeping info close to the chest. Very important. And in recent days, even recent months, we've seen how that can be very effective. Absolutely. I.e. the Idaho college murders, right? But I see what Mary is saying. How are people going to remember? How are people going to look at the evidence and think of people that maybe they, that maybe disappeared from these hours and came home with blood on his shirt? Something weird. It kind of just falls to the wayside. Yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword. That's Yeah, that's tough. There's actually a theory that the perpetrator of Rita's murder was the son of a powerful judge. So maybe that's part of the reason why the investigation was kept kind of hush-hush, especially with the Vermont state attorney. There's rumors that this son of the judge mm. was put in a mental institution as opposed to going through trial and all of that stuff. Hmm. Um, it's not certain whether or not the mental institution thing was as a result of this murder. Right. But he was put in a mental institution because things were not right upstairs. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're questioning that he did have the capacity to murder someone. Right. And do all of these other heinous crimes towards women. Yeah. And then kind of get away with it because of who his dad was. Right. And then ultimately end up in a hospital versus a prison. Exactly. Interesting. That is very interesting. And unfortunately, people come up with theories like that because it's happened before. Mm. People who their parents are police chiefs, judges, whatever. They uh, they get special treatment. It's under, it's under the rug, but it's there. Eight years later, in July of 1979, the Burlington Free Press released an article claiming that there were four major suspects from early on in the investigation. However, at this point, when they released the article... Two of them had already died, one from a drug overdose and one from a car accident, and the other two were in prison for unrelated murder charges. Now, obviously, those two that were alive and in jail, okay, they committed murder, Mm -hmm. they had the capacity to kill, maybe they killed Rita. But they reasoned now that the murders of those two people were not even close to similar to how Rita was killed. And... That can actually mean a whole bunch when you're investigating a murder. MO is a very real thing. People who stab to death don't usually use a gun. You know, it's very stick to what they know and what they can get away with. So it's unlikely that either of those suspects were actually the killer, and they have also never been named to this day. So back at the top of the episode, Liz, you mentioned that Mary worked part-time over the summer as a chambermaid at the South Burlington Colonial Motor Inn. Mm. This inn is on the same street and about a half mile from the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers, which, fun fact, was where Ted Bundy was born. Interesting. This connection specifically and the way that Rita died led a lot of people to believe that Ted Bundy was the perpetrator Mm -hmm. and that Rita Curran was one of his victims. Mm. There's a lot of debate about his whereabouts at the time of her murder. Mm-hmm. He was active yes. during the time that Rita was murdered. Rita's sister Mary actually wrote a letter to Ted Bundy asking him if he murdered her sister. Mm-hmm. Mary stated, quote, 
We asked the FBI when they were interrogating him whether she was one of his victims, and we got a letter back from the FBI that said he did not deny it or acknowledge it. Which is, um, typical Ted Bundy. Yeah, like, you fucking asshole. You can't give this person some closure. Right. But then again, he wouldn't care about any of that. No, definitely not. Like you said, Katie, his whereabouts at that time were unknown, and in her book The Phantom Prince... Ted's ex-girlfriend, Elizabeth, wrote that at the time of the murder, Ted had been attending classes at the University of Washington and working as a delivery driver. However, she was not living with him at that time, so sometimes their communication fell apart just because, I mean, it was the 70s and he lived far away. She lived somewhere else. She wasn't quite living with him. He had a very off and on again relationship with her. So it's not a hundred percent confirmed that she knew where he was. Cause she even says in the book that she doesn't know. Also in 1980, Anne Rule released the book, The Stranger Beside Me, which is probably one of my favorite books of all time. Highly, highly recommend. I recommend it to anyone who will listen. It's a fantastic book. And for those of you who don't know, Anne Rule was an investigative journalist and a writer who also was a police officer at one point, and she happened to work at a crisis center with Ted Bundy in the 70s. And this book is her investigating the murders of Ted Bundy, and then it was Ted Bundy, like the person that she knew, the stranger beside her. So it's a fantastic book, and Rita's murder is actually mentioned in this book. Retired FBI agent John Bassett was from Burlington, Vermont, and so he kind of struck a vested interest in uh, Rita's murder and the potential connection to the serial killer, which really was just his birthplace. Not anything concrete, Mm. not because he was on vacation in Vermont, not because he had a vendetta against the street where (laughs) he was born, just pure coincidence. Mm -hmm. Right before his execution on January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy specifically said he did not commit any murders in the state of Vermont. Very specific. Burlington Police Chief Kevin Scully stated, quote, We have looked into the possibility of Ted Bundy's involvement and were satisfied that at the time of Rita Kern's murder, Bundy was somewhere else in the country. And I would agree with that. Yeah. He was murdering other people, 110%. Yeah. However, he did not murder this specific woman. Yes, and I think I think the Ted Bundy theory personally is a little outlandish. Far-fetched? A little bit. <laughs> but I can see why people would speculate and get all excited because it's, oh, he was, oh, maybe he came to Vermont. No, I just, I think it was just a weird coincidence that he was born on that street. He didn't live there. He didn't grow up there. So, Yeah. To this day, over 50 years later, Rita Curran's murder has never been solved. Anyone with any information on the murder of Rita Curran is asked to please call the Burlington Police Department's cold case tip line. The number is 802-540-2421. And that is the very bizarre and suspicious murder of Rita Curran. It is also Vermont's oldest cold case. Which is very interesting. Because mm-hmm. I feel like, well, I know 1971 was a long time ago, but it also doesn't feel like it's so much. Isn't that crazy? Vermont doesn't really have a lot of crimes for that to be considered the oldest. Right. Which is good, of course. Right. But it's crazy. Weird. Very bizarre. Well, guys, 
Let us know what you think. Do you think Ted Bundy could possibly be connected to this murder? Do you think maybe it was one of her roommates or Paul? Or having to do with the heavy breathing? What about the judge's son? Tell us what you think. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. Oh, lowercase. Or you can send us an email about your thoughts on this case at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. You could also head over to our website, TrueCrimeNE.com. We have a page for this case, other cases that we've covered in episodes. You could go to our contact page and scroll down just a little bit for our handy-dandy submission tool, where you can send us cases, questions, comments, concerns. You can be anonymous if you so choose. Leave your name if you want to. If we end up covering a case that you suggest, you'll get a shout-out. Also, if you want to keep scrolling down that page a little further, we have a link for our Bias a Coffee page. If you feel as though we're doing a good job, you appreciate us and what we do, and you want to buy us a little coffee, or for Liz, a non-coffee drinker. Correct. A hot chocolate. Please. But honestly, you guys being here and listening to us, that is all the appreciation we need, and we it means so much to us. It means more than we could say. And with that... We'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.